Lord, for those of us that know you in the free and full pardon of sin, we've experienced your goodness and your mercy right beside us every day since our conversion, our spiritual birth. But those aren't independent qualities or, or uh, capacities, gifts apart from you. We have goodness and mercy because you are goodness. You are mercy. You're the, the personification of all of these attributes and qualities. It's because we have you that we have these things. It's not, I've, not that I've earned them by my faithfulness. It's not that I've earned those qualities. I've, I've been granted those, those attributes because I earned them by my faithfulness. Lord, when I embraced you, you and all that you are came to me. Goodness and mercy and about 10 billion other qualities and degrees of those qualities became mine. That's the blessing of my life. That knowing you brings all that you are to me. God, help us to see that. Help us to see that. And to find our fullness in just that, as if that's a small thing. We clamor and, and pursue and negotiate and, and grab all of these things that we can. Help us to get to the place, God, that knowing you is more than enough. And all that you bring to us in you is more than we would ever deserve. May we be content with you. May we want all of you. May we want all of you because we discover, we realize, we come to the deep conviction that is the essence of my contentment. Goodness and mercy. You, all the days of my life, dwelling with you forever. In Jesus' name. Open your Bibles to the Psalms. We are looking at the Psalms this summer, trying to look at some of these prayers that we find in the Psalm. We're going to settle on chapter 24 or the 24th Psalm, Psalm 24. Um, but I want to give you some quick introduction. You see it there in the printed notes. Look at Psalm 22. Now notice... Interesting, kind of unique to the book of Psalms, these um, topical like titles or headlines to, to each psalm are part of the original inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, proof, correction. Uh, most study Bibles, if you have a good study Bible, and I, I'm, I use study Bibles all the time, I have a number of them, and, but... but Outside of the Psalms, all the Old Testament books, there may be 
maybe above every chapter or at least every section, there'll be some summation statement. And you can find it in the Old Testament, New Testament, if you, again, have a study Bible, with these additional and 99% of the time accurate uh, summary statements about what you're about to read and, and understand. What's unique about the Psalms is they weren't added by translators or biblical experts. Unique to the Psalms, these Psalms that have a heading, uh, they are part of the original inspiration. So as David and others, Solomon, mostly those two, but a few others, were collecting all these Psalms and Proverbs, there would be a part of the, the this heading, this summary statement, theme of that passage was part of the inspiration, not just added by someone who knew what they were talking about. I find that significant because God is saying to us in Psalm 22 that David wrote this psalm, and you'll see the same thing in 23 and the same thing in 24, and sometimes it will even give you a reason why it frequently will give you some musical. For instance, in chapter 22 or Psalm 22, according to the doe of the dawn. That is either a musical word of instruction or some person with this, this moniker, this nickname, this, this other label. This is according to the word or at least the music that they wrote. So we're getting... These songs they would sing in their worship, written by someone, and and it's still with us to these days, and we're learning much from it. I just love that about these songs. Okay, enough of that. Twenty-two, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you know that phrase, but you don't think of it as coming from King David. Visually, it did. Jesus is quoting the psalm when he's hanging on the cross, praying for our sins. Because Jesus was a Bible guy. I mean, that's kind of an overstatement, but we tend to think, well, he was above that. No, he's, he's not above the Scriptures. Jesus is not apart from, distinct from, uh, I don't really need the Scriptures, that's for the rest of you people. No, when, when push came to shove, what an inaccurate representation of what Jesus is feeling at Calvary. When the pressure is at its greatest, its deepest, its worst, he remembers this line from Psalm 22. So I want you to see that long before Jesus is in his moment, David is in some kind of moment here in Psalm 22, and that moment pushes him to say, verse 1, God feels like you're not here. So I want you right now to think about, have there been moments, or are you in a moment right now, do you feel like, I can't find God? I'm drowning in my circumstances. I'm overwhelmed with confusion. I don't know what to do. And it feels like God doesn't care, or if He cares, He's sure not listening to me right now. God, where are you? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of groaning? Feel that. What's going on in your life? 
your marriage, your parenting, the economics, relationships, the outside of family, what health, what's, what's going on? God, you're so far away, you seem not to care or certainly hear my my brokenness. I'm, I'm crying, I'm, I'm, I'm groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, I find no rest. Wow. Yet, I, I know there's no sin with you, God. His theology is still in place, but his emotions are screaming. Do you see the, the coexistence? And it looks like a contradiction, but they coexist. I know God makes no mistakes. I know God is holy. I can't feel him right now. You are holy, verse 3, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried. They were rescued. You, you have a history of saving your people, God. And I know that history. And I'm counting on your faithfulness to save me too. I don't feel it yet. But in my convictional place, not my emotional place, not my fear and doubt moment, but in my theological truth, the foundation of my life, I know that eventually you're going to come through for me because you always come through for your people. They cried, they were rescued because they trusted and they weren't left out on a limb is my phrase put to shame. God's not going to embarrass us. Well, too bad. You weren't faithful enough. I'm dropping you. What is faithful enough? I don't know what faithful enough is. 20%? 80%? Oh, no, no, Pastor. It's just got to be 51%. Well, I can show you some amazing pictures in Scripture of people who didn't come anywhere near 51% faithfulness, and God showed up big for them. God doesn't show up big for sinners. None of us have any hope. God shows up big for sinners who've done big, stupid, sinful stuff over and over. But when they own it, the mercy of God comes. That's Psalm 22. You get really three sermons this morning. Here's 23. Look at 23. I want to quickly get to verse 4. This is a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. You know what that means? I can be content. Are you content right now? But you can be. Not because you have enough stuff. Not because your problems are all going to go away. Not because all of the confusion has been cleared up. Not because the future is guaranteed of just absolute bliss. You can be content not because any of that stuff's in place. You can be content because God is your shepherd. The Lord Himself is my shepherd. I'm good. I'm getting my brains kicked in right now. It feels like 22. And he's far away, and I can't get in touch. But deep in my theological place, deep in my soul, where truth lives, not my emotions, not my fears, not my 21st century economic desires, but deep in my soul where truth is, I know I'm going to be okay. Simply because he's my shepherd. 
skip down to 23 to verse 4. This is how bad it gets. Even though I walk, we just sang the great line, through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid. The tendency comes up in me to get afraid. Oh my, oh my, oh my! Stop, stop. Your, your spirit has to speak to your mind and says, Dave, stop being afraid. God knows what he's doing in your life. Even though, verse 4, I will fear no evil. You know why? Not because I'm strong and I quote verses to myself all the time. No, I, I don't have to be afraid. I, I'm, I'm not afraid of evil because you are with me. You are with me. I, I could give you three sermons. I'm trying not to. Let's get to the sermon. Psalm 24. Now, verse 1 and 2, he gives a... Uh, a blanket and, and profound theological statement of truth. And then in verse 3, which is a, a, a frequent, you see it almost exactly the same thing in Psalm, I think it's 15, where he asks a question and then he spends the rest of the psalm answering the question. He, he, he first sets a premise, a theological foundation, a premise for us to stand on, verse 1 and 2. And we'll look at that sort of briefly, sort of. <laughs> He then asked the question, verse 3, and the answer is profound. That's why I want to spend time with you in 24. So here's the statement. Here's the foundational premise. 24, verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He doesn't even identify the righteous, the believing, the repentant. Pick your biblical qualifying term, Christians. Everything, everyone is mine. The earth is the Lord's. This ball that we live on, the solar system that it's a part of, the whole universe that we can't see, telescopes haven't been invented yet to find them, all of it is His. The earth is the Lord's. Everything in the universe is his, the world and those who dwell therein. You know why? Because he's the one that made it. Look, there has always, since, since the beginning of time, since the days of Noah, there have always been people bringing theories as to why God is not really the one, the true, the only living God. There, this is not a new problem. It's come to a, a whole new level in our culture. But there have always been people saying, no, Jehovah's not God. There's, there's other gods. What's unique about all these other religions, as much as people say that, there's no one ever stepped up forward and said, yeah, yeah because I'm God. All of the other originators of, of, of denominational or, or maybe it's not even denominational within, say, the Christian umbrella, but, but other uh, atheistic positions or pick your label and, and definition, none of them, none of them say, I am God in the flesh. I am God. And there is no other. 
That's unique to God the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Unique to them, to Him. All these other self-proclaimed experts and, and leaders and, uh, you know, insightful people with answers to eternity, they all refer to themselves as, well, I'm a prophet of God. And they redefine God. God is not the Trinitarian God that the Scriptures speak of. No, no, no. Uh, the, the, the God that sent me as his spokesman prophet, well, he says this, and he says this, and he says this, and because it's an easier, weaker alternative to Jehovah, oh, that, that sounds interesting to me. Only God says, Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2, only the one, the true, the living God says, at the risk of sounding arrogant and possessive, Verse 1, the earth is mine and everything in it. You know why? Verse 2, because I'm the one who made it. The phrase seas is probably a poetic, seas and rivers, probably a poetic. It, it, it has to do that, that God created the earth out of nothing. And then there's this little detail. Is it day two or day three? I think the pastor would know this. <laughs> That he separates the seeds the, from, from the, the moisture and the, the, the clouds gather up the moisture and, and, and store it. And then it rains and fills the rivers and the lakes and it runs into the seas. And as if the sea is this platform upon which the earth floats or rests or exists. You get the idea there. As if you're looking at things horizontally, not as God made it in circumference and gravity holding it all together. But as a landscape, it looks like the earth is setting on the seas. We're sitting between the Pacific and the Atlantic. We're just kind of bobbling there. It looks that way. That's why people thought the earth was flat. So poetically, he's saying in verse 2, he founded it, he created it, he declared it, he spoke it into existence, and there it rests. Visually, from our perspective, upon the seas and the rivers. There's the statement. God is God. Now, here's the important question. Verse 3. How do we get to God? Who, who shall ascend? Now, we're reading poetry here. So, let yourself be a little poetic. I want to help. Who gets high where he's high? How do we ascend? How do we climb up into the presence of God? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? How do we get to heaven? How do we come into the presence of God? How do I move from this created, and I know myself, less than perfect, let's just get it said, sinful, wretched, how accurate and honest you want to be with yourself. How do I move from this position that I'm in to his position of sinlessness and holiness and righteousness and love and mercy? And all I know is greed and revenge. How do I, how do I get from here to there? How do, how do I move geographically? How do I move philosophically? How do I move extraterrestrially? How, how do I get to God? Is the question of verse 3. 
And isn't that every human being's question? Of every generation, of every era of time, from the most simplistic and ancient, which, by the way, I don't think the people in Noah's day were that simplistic. I think they were brilliant and rebellious. Just like we have become brilliant and rebellious. We don't need God. We've got this whole thing figured out. Who can come into the presence of God? Who gets to see God? Who gets to be with God? Well, beginning in verse 4, he begins to answer the question. So this is why I've been saying all my life, at least all my preaching life, pastoral adult life, the Bible is not saying 10,000 different things. The Bible is saying a few things in 10,000 different ways. Over and over and over and over and over. Here's the gospel in Psalm 24. And Pastor Jose introduced this series last week for us, and he gave us the first installment of of these eight weeks. He said, we just finished a summary of the gospel in eight sessions. So we're not done. You're going to hear a lot of the gospel in the next eight. And here we are confirming what Pastor told us last week. Who shall ascend? And for the next few verses, he answers the question. We start in verse 4, and he gives us a list of four qualities. Really, I think there are three. The second one, and at least the third one in my mind, divided in two parts. You get four statements out of verse 4. Number one, clean hands. Number two, pure heart. Number three, does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. I'm combining the last two, false and deceitfully, pretty much first cousins, almost if not literally synonymous. So if you're looking for, because we live in a, you know, a, a Reader's Digest era. Does Reader's Digest still get printed? Does anyone, does it, does it still exist? So that just revealed how old I am. It's a summary. It's a summation. It's a, it's a condensation of a number of things. Every night at dinner, my dad would start a conversation and ask, what was going on in our lives spiritually. And my mom did not interrupt that, and she certainly did not compete with that. But he, as long as it took him 20 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes, then mom would get the Reader's Digest, and there was this little section called Improve Your Word Power. And we had to learn all these words and the definition of them and, and give a, use it in a sentence. Mom, you're just killing me. You're just killing me. By the time I was in the eighth grade, I had this most amazing vocabulary that no one else in the whole world can understand. Mom, who cares? Here's these four statements in verse 4. Clean hands is behavior. Clean hands is behavior. So, how's your behavior? Clean hands is, I'm not choked somebody to death. Jesus then comes and says, well, I'm glad you haven't choked them to death, but I even want to talk about your wishing you could choke them to death. Down in your mind and your heart, it's the same thing. So who's got clean hands? Anyone here foolish enough, arrogant enough to say, uh, as a matter of fact, Pastor, there's not a one of us in the room have clean hands. 
If you have clean hands, Jesus doesn't need to die for you because you're just perfect. God doesn't grade on a curve, and he doesn't, well, he only grades until up to age six. After that, it doesn't matter. I think I told a lie before I was six. No one has clean hands. And if you think you do, you're really kidding yourself. But, but even, well, I, I think about it, but I've never actually done it. Well, then the second word condemns you. You have a pure heart. Clean hands, pure heart. I, I, I love the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I think it's chapter 5. I just love those statements. Those, they are, they are, it's the essence of, of, of the righteousness that Christ imputes into us. It changes us, and, and it's those words, blessed are you if. There's a blessing that comes if this, if this, if this. And I don't know which number it is. I think it's verse 8. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. And interestingly enough, as if, as, as, as if Jesus is thinking about Psalm 24. Jesus is the one giving us the Beatitudes in, in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole sermon. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, you know the verse? See God. They shall see God. What is the big question here in Psalm 24? In verse 3, how do we get to see God? How do we ascend to where he lives? How do we get up to his level? How do I see God? Clean hands. Pure heart. My actions and my motives. My behavior and the intent that drives that behavior are pure and clean. I'm not trying to be funny. We're in big trouble here. Because we do nice things for the most wicked reasons. We help because I'm going to need some help. We do favors because I'm going to call in some favors. This is why we think it's just bizarre that Jesus says, and when they strike you on one side of the face, you volunteer the other. Oh, now that's just plain crazy, Jesus. Well, it seems crazy to us because our heart isn't pure. Now, I don't even think the word pure here in the particular use of the term, this, this unique, it's not that unique, but this, this particular expression, the word pure, I'm not sure it's even talking about sinlessness as it is so much talking about it has no, zero ulterior motivation. My only motive is to behave in such a way that pleases God. It is pure. It is unadulterated. It has no secondary self-serving benefit. It is maybe, perhaps, the best illustration would be... Well, I just had those moments. It's where the guy encounters a person who's been beaten and left for dead, and the priest walks by and doesn't help, and a prophet walks by and doesn't help, but this Samaritan, he stops, and putting himself at risk, because the, the people who beat him, they're probably hiding up in the hills, they're watching me, and they're going to get me too. With disregard to, to self-preservation, he stops, 
He helps him, carries him to somewhere, gets some help, leaves some money, doesn't even know the guy. He does this beautiful thing, and Jesus, now that's, that's what I'm talking about. If Jesus ever said that, that's what I'm talking about. This good Samaritan. This is what's called for. To answer the question in verse 3, how do we see God? Verse 4, clean hands, pure heart. And then to make sure we get the sense of ulterior motivation, to make sure that's driven home to us two times in the second part of the verse, he gives us this phrase, does not lift up his hold of what is false, does not swear, take an oath deceitfully. Your soul is more than your mind, your will, your emotion. It's the essence of your being. Soul is to the, the ethereal part of us as abdomen or core is to our biological bodies. You, you can't do anything without your core contracting. Sit down, stand up, lean, bend, reach, arch your back, stretch your aching back. You can't do virtually, if literally, anything without your core is in play. Jesus is saying, I want you to get to the place. Second line of verse 4. That nothing in you is false. Okay, we're back to the word pure heart. I want your motives, your actions to be like mine. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Is anything more pure than that? And that the son, like Abraham and Isaac, were in a, an agreement that, son, I'm going to offer you, and Isaac says, okay, dad. I don't think Isaac arched his back or flinched or said, Dad, no! I wasn't there. There's no video. But my guess is Abraham's hand is descending. And the voice of God spoke to him and said, Do your son no harm. I've always known your heart, Abraham. I wanted you to see your own heart. Abraham, you have clean hands in this moment. Not always, but you have clean hands. You have a pure heart, Abraham. You think Isaac didn't see that? Dad, that was beautiful. You knew he was going to bring me back to life. You knew that, didn't you, Dad? He would say, yes, son, I did know that. I didn't want to scare you. But I did know that, son. I believed that. With all my being, because God is enough. That's who sees God. That's who comes into his presence. Not because we've earned it by our faithfulness. We'll get to that. We'll get to that real quick. Who shall ascend? Three, four. Clean hands. Pure heart. That last line, two statements, two phrases, 
There's nothing deceptive. There's nothing false. There's nothing ulterior. There's nothing that, you know, yeah, yeah, we're not going to talk about the disclaimer. That's in the small print. Don't worry about that. That'll never happen. There is no small print. There is no disclaimer. 100% absolute, clear, and free of anything deceptive. That's who sees God. That's who can walk right up to where He is. If the psalm ended at verse 4, we should all What, what do we do? Give up hope? Kill ourselves? What, what do we do? But the psalm doesn't end at verse 4. Hallelujah. Look at verse 5. The person that sees the call of God, feels the call of God, and pursues this life of verse 4, look at verse 5. He will, what is that great word? Do you have the word receive? It is not the word achieve. <laughs> I've not accomplished anything. I have received something. I have received something. Blessing. Righteousness. From the God of, what's the last line of verse 5? From the God of his salvation. If I earn this, it would be my reward. If I earn this, it would be my achievement. If I earn this, it would be my, my benefit, my crown. But I've received blessing. I've received blessing. And I love especially the last line of verse 5, my rescue, my salvation. I didn't save myself. I didn't rescue myself. I didn't pick myself up by my bootstraps, whatever that phrase means, and I became this amazing person. No, that's not at all what happened. God came in the person of his own son, and he told the truth about mercy and grace. And that generation told the next generation, told the next generation, and somewhere in that process, my dad and mom heard that, and they told me, and I'm telling you, and who are you telling? And we tell one another about this mercy and this grace that rescues us from ourselves, because I don't have clean hands, and I sure don't have a pure heart. But if we can catch the heart of God, the preaching of Jesus, see the failures of external religion in the Old Testament. And God did that on purpose, intentionally. I'm going to give you religion. I'm going to give you what to do. And if you do that, you'll be good. And they couldn't do it. And we can't do it. That's why the Old Testament exists. To prove to us visually, historically, irrefutably that you can't, verse 3, make your way up the hill on your own effort. So we have to receive something. Something outside of us has to come and save us. This righteousness, this salvation. 
it's an external thing that comes to us. Who's more, culturally speaking, noble and, and respectable and impressive than Nicodemus who goes to Jesus at nighttime, maybe because he was busy all day, probably because he didn't want to be seen talking to this radical rabbi. So he goes at night, so as not to be recognized. And he says, my language. So I'm intrigued, but what's your deal, man? What, what, what are you saying? Where are you coming from? What, you're crazy, you're different, but there's something about you. I don't know if I'm, I, I am drawn to you, but are you crazy? I, I don't know if I should trust you. Maybe I should turn you in. But I'm here at night with my confusion asking you questions. And Jesus says, oh, the problem here, man, I got this. The problem is you need a second birth. You need to be born again. And immediately he says, what are you talking about? I'm a grown man. I'm, I'm supposed to shrink down, get into my mother's womb. Are you crazy? Because the natural man doesn't think spiritually. Thinks naturally. And as illogical as a grown human male or female entering their mother's womb is bizarre. It only illustrates that no one is thinking about the spiritual realm. Because religion has very little to do with spiritual realm. Have you never thought that through? Religion is about you being your best. That's a phrase we hear a lot about these days, isn't it? You be the best you you can be. It's all about the best you. And that's, that's, that would be good for the culture. We were all our best selves. Religion is based on that concept. But Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Jesus came to give truth. And the truth of the matter is, you got to start over. You need to be born again. Whether your body is healthy or not, that's not the issue. You need a spiritual life. You have a physical body, a physical life. You don't have a spiritual life. You're spiritually dead. You need a do-over, man. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. This is the generation, verse 6. This is the characteristic. This is David speaking in the Old Testament. This would be a whole generation of people. This would be the, the next generation coming up. This would be a globally wide movement that we're looking for this quality that they seek the face of the God of Jacob. And I've been wrestling for weeks. What specifically is being implied here? And I think if, 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 if the Spirit of God is prompting me right in my own wrestling and praying, and, and, and there's not a whole lot of guys ahead of me who, there's a number of theories. Could mean this, could mean this, could mean this. No one was dogmatic and, and certainly didn't bring enough scriptural evidence, but I've come to my conviction, conclusion. I think the key is, is in the word generation. He's talking about an era of time 
and, and everyone, all the people in that era of time. And he gives us help when he says, such, such, they, people, people like, there would be people like, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Why is God here called the God of Jacob, not the God of Abraham, right? I'm not saying that Jacob was nothing, but if you're looking for heroes, Jacob probably not on your list. Jacob was a liar and a sheep. His son Joseph, now there's a hero. Isaac, we, we, we don't know nearly as much about Isaac as we do about Jacob, and what we know about Jacob is not good. He's a liar and a sheep. Abraham got good, he became good, but Abraham was a liar. Abraham's heart wasn't pure and his hands weren't clean. Jacob would treat you nice to your face, but he don't cheat you in business. Do you know any Christians like that? Do you have any Christians in the room who at least admit it today? Well, you know, it's, it's legal. Okay, it, it, it is legal to take advantage of people when they don't know. It is legal. Too bad for you. Stupid for you. Good for me. Now your money's in my pocket. Well, you're stupid. I'm not. <laughs> That's pretty much Jacob. And he learned that from his father and his grandfather. But then something happened to Jacob. The mercy of God came to Jacob. It's all the language that we see in verse 5. He was blessed. He received salvation. There was a quickening. There was an awakening. There was, I can't keep living like this. What is wrong with me? Something happened in Jacob's life. And there was this switch. There was this transformation. He became other-centered, not self-centered. He repented to his brother, whom he had cheated. He was restored to right relationship to the rest of his family because he ran away to save his life because they're all going to kill him. David seems to be saying, to me at least, uh, you're going to have to wrestle with verse 6 on your own, but this is, this is all I have to give you. David seems to be saying to us in verse 6 that there will come a day that there will be a mass of people, a generation of people who, like Jacob, have lived their life this way, according to the worldly standard and its rules and its permissiveness. And it's applauding the wrong motive so long as you achieve the right success. Money and wealth and fame. No matter how you got there, you're a winner. There will be a generation that rejects that whole philosophy and way of living. And they seek the face of God, who was God to a sinner like Jacob. Who is God to a sinner like us? Who is God 
to any man or woman or boy or girl of, of, of comprehensible abilities to say, no, I can't keep living like this. I'm disgusted with myself. My hands aren't clean, and surely my heart is not pure. But there's hope for all of us in Jesus. There is a generation that seek him like Jacob did and found forgiveness and received, back to verse 5, blessing and righteousness because they were rescued. God saved them. Now, there is there at the end of verse 6 this great word, selah, or selah, however you pronounce it, really doesn't matter. There's a little debate, but in essence it's this. It might be both a musical term, but it's way more than just a musical term. It was a pause, maybe, for the, the musicians to retune their crude, homemade, stringed instruments. So if they're homemade, I mean, they, they weren't total junk, but it's not as it is today with all of our technology and machinery to make amazing tools, instruments. So they would pause and retune and but it was, it was also, probably even more than that, I want you to pause before we sing the next chorus of the song. I, I want you to think about what you just said, what you just sang, what you just heard. I, I want you to think about these first six verses, especially verses 3 to 6. I especially want you to think of verses 3 to 6. I, I know we have the premise, verse 1 and 2, but especially think about what's being said, verse 3 to 6, before we move on. Verse 7, 8, 9, 10. Stop here and think about this. So I'm asking you, are you trying to come into the presence of God? Verse 3. Oh, Pastor, Pastor, come on. You talk like that. I'm, I'm born again. I was born again before you were born. Well, you probably got saved when you were six months old. But I'm, you know, not number four or five, the oldest guy in the room right now. I want you to think about, especially verse 3, what do you think about when I need to come into God's presence? I need God in my life. I, I need to get closer to God. I, something's missing. Something's broken. Something's wrong. And what are those thoughts, what kind of answers do you come up with to answer your own thoughts? The answer the Bible gives is verse 4. And when you read the answer of verse 4, are you okay with that? Or you think, oh, now I'm in worse trouble than before. If, that, if verse 4 is the only way I can come to the presence of God, how am I ever going to get to the presence of God? Clean hands, pure, pure, with no mixture. But there's certain drinks that I like because of their taste. And, and there's certain drinks that I don't like at all because of their taste. And it is the same. But I, I can tell you what I do. I, I, I can find the nastiest drink and load it with sugar. I'll drink it. Because I love me some sugar. And the doctors are all screaming at me. And my family's screaming at me. You're going to kill yourself. 
drinking all this, eating all this sugar. It's amazing the nasty stuff we put up with, and we sweeten it with some little. You know, my diet's not pure. At this point, I can't give you this much. But if my heart's not pure, you got eternal problems. You have eternal problems. I got health problems, and maybe I can fix them. But eternal problems? I don't know how to fix that. You know why? Because I didn't do verse 1 and 2 stuff. I didn't make the world. I wound up in it. I happened to be blessed. I was raised by Christian parents. Some of you were not. But God has you here now. And we're still wrestling with this stuff. Can I come into the presence of God? Can I offend to His high, elevated, lofty place? Poetically speaking, you get the same idea. You need to think about this stuff. A little pause between 6 and 7. You've got to be thinking about this stuff. Because death, human end of life is real, and eternity is a very long time. You've got to be thinking about this. And he ends on a beautiful, beautiful, thrilling, beautiful note. In the repetition of 7, 8, 9, and 10. And I want to take them a bit differently. 7 and 9 are the same. And I want to deal with 7 and 9 together. And then we'll look at 8 and 10 together. Here's the... Actually, I think, the heart of the passage. It's in these last four verses, really two statements, two extended, elaborated statements, that we get the question answered back in verse 3, who shall ascend? The question is answered in these verses, 7 and 9, 8 and 10. Here they are. First of all, he seems to personify. He, he seems to poetically shift his language a bit. And when he speaks about a generation, we just saw, I spent some time on that in verse 6, he seems now to be seeing, picturing a, a city of people or a congregation of people sitting in church. But to get into the building, he had to open the gates or open the doors. How would you get into Jerusalem? It's gates and doors. You get into the city through a gate. You get into the temple through a door. You get the idea. Something has to open for entrance to occur. A gate, a door. But he speaks of these gates and doors as living your head. Lift up your head. Lift up the doors. As if we open or close things. Oh. Well, how open or closed off are you towards God? Well, Pastor, you're, you're being really poetic because I think David, the poet, is being poetic. And he would write these things and they would set them to music and they would sing them in their worship. I think the shift between 6 and 7 is he's turning the question now 
not just universally to the culture, but specifically to people that's reading. You're the one that's in the way. You're the hindrance. Lift up your hedge, you gates. We're the gates. And I think you know that. But we don't want to admit that when it it costs me something. I want to say that when I'm in charge. You better believe I'm the one. I, I, I run my life. This is my life. Nobody tell me. I decide what I'm going to do until I'm jammed up and I need help. And the help that I need is beyond me and I can't produce it, nor can any other human being. I need divine help from God himself. Oh, now I have to bow before God? You better believe you need to bow before God. And then, oh, well, I'll relinquish. I'll relinquish my self-determination. And as soon as I get just a little fragrance of forgiveness. I, I went to church on Christmas and Easter and I quit beating my wife. Well, now I'm good. And I go right back to, I'm the man. No, the ongoing songs that they would sing in their worship, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. Lift up, lift up your heads, oh you gates. When you lift up your head, you, you set your eyes on something, you start paying attention to something that has been there all the whole time, but you overlooked it. Paintings on the wall forever. You never really paid much attention to it. But now it's caught your attention. Lift up your heads. Get your eyes fixed on something. See the truth of Psalm 24. That we're in trouble. Hands aren't clean. Our hearts aren't pure. Everything we do is, is adulterated with some kind of deception. With some ulterior motivation. We're broken. We're bruised. We're spoiled, rotten fruit. No one wants us. Lift up your heads. Lift up your heads, you gates. The second one might even be more clear. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Get your attention changed and remove the barriers. Open the gates. Open the do doors. Fix your mind on truth. Lift up your heads, make it clear, and then look at the last line of verse 7, same last line as verse 9, and the king of glory will come in. We're trying, verse 3, to get to him. We think we've got to get to him. And he's saying, no, you've got this whole thing back. You're the one that's keeping me out. Lift up your heads and see me for who I am. Open the doors and I'll come in. We don't have to chase after him. He sent his son to chase after us. He dispatched the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Come on, get out of the way and let Jesus come. And I fear, however, that we're deathly afraid of that. That's too much Jesus. I want just enough to keep me out of hell. I don't want enough to make me crazy foolish. You don't have to decide. How much Jesus do you want? And before, before you answer that hypothetical question, I'm not sure the answer, but I think I've got a strong, strong inclination. Do you really think you can divide Jesus up into pieces? 
Do you really think you can take just a fraction? Does your spouse want just a fraction of you? I, I, I really, this is not jokes. <laughs> I often feel Tom loves to cook and serve, and I, I'm telling you, I, I can live on junk. I'm, I'm not a culinary anything. I can barely spell the word, and only because my mother taught me how to spell. I, 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 every restaurant in the face of the earth could shut down tomorrow, and I would be fine. I'm not a connoisseur of anything. If it's not just burnt like a brick, I'll eat it. So I really try and be gracious and appreciative, and she knocks herself out, and I'm saying, oh, oh that was good. But peanut butter and jelly is good. But the point I'm rambling to get to is this. No one wants to be used for one particular thing. Food, making money, sex. It's a package deal. No woman wants to be, I'm, I'm just my husband's sex slave. And no man wants to think, I'm just my wife's sugar daddy. No one wants to be exploited for one particular aspect of their existence. Nobody. We are all full-orb people. We don't achieve the same degree of expertise or fullness in every particular category. But we function in all of the categories. And we embrace one another in all of the categories. Now, the beauty of Jesus, he is perfectly clean hands, pure heart in every category imaginable. He's the one that has clean hands. He's the one that has a pure heart. And when I come to faith in Christ, I'm born again. I get a new life. And that new life that he's trying to infuse into me is where I find for me clean hands and a pure heart, or at least movement in that direction. And the more I see that, and I embrace the fullness of Christ, and I set my attention, my focus on him, I lift up my head. And I open the doors of my life in every aspect. Time, money, energy, compassion. I open up the doors and I fix my eyes on him. My heads are looking, my head is looking at him. My doors are open. Then he comes. He comes. He comes. And you know what happens when he comes? I'm transported to verse 3. I'm in his presence. I didn't have to go to Jerusalem. I'm not saying it's long if you go. I don't have to go. Verse nine and, uh, uh, 8 and 10. Who is this king of glory? Who, who is this person? Oh, you know. Look at, look at the definition. Strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. What are your battles these days? Why don't you let Jesus take up your battles? 
What mess have you backed yourself into? Don't you ask him to get you out. What has your lack of clean hands got you into? Or maybe, this is no pun intended, I'm not being, at least it's sarcastic. Maybe in this particular category, your hands are clean, but boy, are you getting punched in the face. You're getting kicked hard. Marriage is in serious trouble. Kids are cursing God and you. So that nullifies everything we've covered so far? God can't fight that battle? Who is this king that will come in? When you get your attention fixed on him and you open the doors, you lift up your hands. God, I'm looking at you. I'm not looking at my troubles. I'm not looking at my problems. I'm not looking at my lack of money, my lack of ability. God, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. I believe that you are enough. And I'm, I'm opening the doors. Come, God, come. He will come. He will come. And what happens? What happens when he comes? His glory comes with him. Who is this king? Oh, he's the king of glory. Glory is might and power. And it is that feel-good, brilliant light that warms us and makes us stand up straight and say, I ain't afraid anymore because God is with me. And he gives me light to see. I'm going to get through this. Not just get through it, survive. We are, you know the verse? More than conquerors through him who loves us. This is what David, the same David who committed adultery and murder, the same David who later in his life, two of his sons tried to kill him and steal the throne. It is that David who's saying these things to us. And Jesus quoted him on the cross. And when Jesus quotes David on the cross, he's saying to the Father, God, fight this battle for me. I'm here naked in front of my mother and all of humanity. And they're cursing me and calling me a false prophet. And I am, in fact, the savior of their lives. God, Father, help me fight this battle. Now, how are you going to live your life? When troubles come. And we've got no troubles like Jesus on the cross. I don't know troubles like David knew troubles. But here's the hope of the scriptures. That God is always enough. God is always enough. You need to lift up your head and set your eyes on him. And you will open the doors of your life and say, God, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of holding back and protecting this little piece of my life just for me and keeping you out. God, I'm opening all the doors, all the doors. You come, you come. You know who comes? The King of glory. Strong, strong, mighty. Could you stand some might in your life? Open the doors. Get on your knees. Own your fears. Confess your foolish attempts to try and fix and make everything right. Say, God, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do. You know what to do. I'm in way over my head. I've been in this place for a long time. I'm not getting better. I'm sinking deeper. God, help me. God, help me. 
I'm not saving anything for myself. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not restricting you. For, you got 80%. Got the, the 20 life. No, God, I'm, all the doors are open. All the doors are open. My eyes are lifted up on you. Oh, he will come. He will come with glory, with light and power and might. He showed up at Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. He showed up at the River Nile and the water opened up. Over and over, these great stories we love in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. Peter said, we've been fishing all night, but if you're okay, we'll accommodate you. We'll go back out. And they never caught so many fish in their life. Oh, the king of glory will come in. King of glory will come in. I don't know what it's going to do. I, I don't know if, if you're going to get all your expectations, but it'll be great. And you'll think, that's even better than I. It didn't turn out the way I thought. But this is even better. Those people maybe still hate you. But his love is restored. He'll bring new Christians into your life that love you. You'll think, oh, this is sweet. This is sweet. I still miss them, but this is sweet. He will not leave us comfortless. He will come in. He will come in. Lift up your head. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. Open the doors of your life. And this King of glory, He will come in. Let's sing.